0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: This happens in all kinds of circles where people will say, God has a plan for your life, and I'll tell you what that is. (laughs) And ultimately, who are any of us to know what God's plan is for someone else and their life? And I say in the book, that can be considered even a little theologically arrogant (laughs) to say that to someone else. When instead, I think each of us has human agency, and each of us should discern uh, our future for ourselves.
0: Things not seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to Patreon.com/slash/NotSeenRadio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/slash/NotSeenRadio. Thank you. Does
1: Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly—it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach, with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com
0: slash AI for all. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome back to the program Brian Schmisek. He's an award-winning author, and he has had a distinguished career in Catholic higher education, most recently as provost and dean of faculties at St. Mary's University in Minnesota. He was also dean at Loyola University Chicago and the University of Dallas. Currently, his post is as provost of the University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, Illinois. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan, The Human Quest for Meaning. Dr. Brian Schmisek, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. It's great to be here, and thanks for having me. So I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place, actually in the middle of the 17th century. There's a man by the name of Sir Isaac Newton, and as he lives between the years 1642 and 1727, he begins to create a model for the universe where literally every piece of data, every interaction, every object in the universe is part of a mechanical whole. Listeners, if you think maybe about a pool table where somebody hits one ball and the other balls are scattered as a result of that one hit, and every one of those scatterings can be mathematically determined, this was the kind of universe that Isaac Newton was giving to us, a kind of mechanical universe. Now, why I want to start there is because if we imagine that the universe is mechanical, then that gives us a certain way of thinking about the future. And that's primarily what your book, "Sign Superstitions and God's Plan, is about. It's a way of thinking about the future. Now, when I say it in those words, and I say those words to you as a reader, I want to make sure I've got it right. Would you agree that this is a book about how we go about trying to predict the future, or would you say it in a different way?
1: David, I think that's a really fascinating insight. I might say it in a slightly different way, though, in that I find that this book is meant to address those people who have questions about what is this all for and what is the purpose of life? Does my life have any particular meaning? Am I on a plan? Am I following God's plan or is there a plan that I'm supposed to follow? In the preface, I say that I wrote this to my 20-year-old self because at that time I had those kinds of questions. Am I supposed to meet somebody? Am I supposed to have a family? Am I supposed to do something else with my life? And I think that many of us wonder those things. This is this book is meant to address some of those questions. So in that sense, maybe it is about a future, wondering about, is there a future plan for me or does everything happen for a reason? Was this meant to be? Those kinds of questions permeate the book. I'm so grateful
0: for that clarification. And if I'm hearing you correctly, that kind of universe that Isaac Newton imagined where every action could be mapped both from its its history, its trajectory into a future where it would end somewhere, that's a fundamentally different kind of question than the one that you are trying to write to your 20-year-old self. And let me explain what I mean. Because if we live in Isaac Newton's mechanical universe, then there really is no point in reassuring your 20-year-old self. All you need to say is just keep existing. There is nothing that you can do to change any outcomes. And if you try, you're simply going to be pushed back into place by the mechanics of the system. There's no point. Don't worry about it. But what I'm hearing you saying is that your 20-year-old self was worrying about it and thought that maybe we were living in a different kind of universe where our choices had some kind of impact on the way that things unfold. Now, when I say it to you that way, am I getting what you're meaning or would you say it in a different way?
1: No, I think that's really approaching it. One of the things that I do in the book is try to use a lot of examples from modernity. And so I think one of the movies that I cite in there is uh, Back to the Future. When you remember that movie from, I think it was 1985, where if something had happened slightly differently, what would the effects have been? Maybe if you know, McFly had stood up to his antagonist, he would have had a great life with this beautiful wife and wonderful, loving children into the future. Uh, but then Marty McFly was born into a life where his dad maybe hadn't stood up to the antagonist. And so he sees what this life might have been like and In the end, he's able to change the future because he helps his dad uh, stand up to that uh, antagonist.
0: This is really helpful. And so what I love for this and what you're setting up for my listeners is we're really talking about a kind of dynamic where we are in a set of circumstances and those circumstances, if we don't do anything, will push us in a direction like water would push us down a river. But you're talking about coming into that set of circumstances where we're being pushed down the river and handing somebody a paddle and saying, now you've got some agency here. Which direction will you go? And you're not just talking about the person. What I love about this is you're not just talking about the person right now reading. But as you have just said, you're also talking about the person imagining themselves in the past, like your 20 year old self or imagining themselves in the future, the person that they're going to be. This is a really complex set of pieces that you're putting in place in this book. I wondered how you thought about putting it together when you were sitting down with your editors.
1: Yeah, it was, that's another great question. I think partly I wanted to engage a reader and say that these are not new questions. They've been with us for a very long time. You know, from the biblical period, from the Greco-Roman period, a lot of people have been asking these questions. The philosophy categories of Stoicism, Fate, you know, those things have been with us for a long time. And again, the biblical world, and then the question of free will and human agency. Do we actually have free will? And do we have any agency in our future? These questions have been with us for a very long time. So, what I wanted to do in this book is uh, have a little dialogue with classical history, the Greco Roman period, cite some biblical examples. Also shows some modern examples, as I mentioned, Back to the Future and some other movies, even some TV shows, about how these questions permeate our lives. And we probably all have a way of thinking about, you know, whether everything happens for a reason or it was meant to be, or whether it's happening according to God's plan. But as you said, in this book, I want to maybe hand the reader a paddle in that river and say that we do have tremendous agency in our own lives and in our own future. And sometimes Simply saying everything happens for a reason or this was meant to be can be a default. <laughs> and maybe it's uh, better to imagine that, no, we, we actually have a lot of agency in our lives. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this
0: is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. And today we're welcoming back to the show, Dr. Brian Schmisek. He is provost at the University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, Illinois. And we're talking about his most recent book, Signs, superstitions, and God's plan: the human quest for meaning. Well, this is one of the things that comes up again and again in your book, "Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan." Is you're really inviting the reader to take a grand look at the way human beings have thought about themselves throughout recorded history. As you just said a moment ago, you go all the way back to the classical period. So you, you talk about ancient historians, you talk about Julius Caesar. Then you walk us through the biblical period and you look at some biblical texts, but then you're also looking at our kind of modern scriptures. You talk about movies and other sorts of stories that we tell ourselves. But in each case, what you're showing again and again is that human beings are presented with a set of circumstances, and instead of just throwing up their hands and saying, well, it's my fate, they try and take action within those circumstances. They try and both rest meaning— from whatever it is that they're thrown into. And then from that meaning, they try and make plans. So let's talk about these both in turns. Let's talk, first of all, about meaning-making. So what is this process of meaning-making, and why is it so important, at least from the way that you've demonstrated evidence in the book, to the entire task of being human?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, of course, I don't even claim to be the first person to imagine that, right? I mean, I, I cite in the book, Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, He's the one who said that is the fundamental task of being a human being is to make meaning of one's circumstances. And of course, he was a very well-educated psychiatrist who was put into a concentration camp and he had to make sense of the meaning. He survived that. And in the end, he says that it really wasn't part of any plan. Uh, It wasn't part of some larger God's plan for him to suffer in that way and to have everything taken away. But he says it's something that happened in the larger culture, the rise of the Nazis and the evil that they committed. And he said it really wasn't part of God's plan that happened. It was the circumstances and a result of human choices. And he says, what I can do now is respond to that and make meaning of this and become the best person I can be in light of what has happened to me. And to me, I think that was such a remarkable insight. And that's why the book was such a bestseller and continues to be, you know, one of the most printed books of all time, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I think to myself, that's a tremendous insight. And it's something that I wanted to apply to what I was doing in this book.
0: So for our listeners, as we're moving towards our first break, let's stay with this idea of meaning making. You gave just the example of Viktor Frankl. There are other examples as well. There are often times when we enter into a situation and we begin to look at the way things are stacked up for us or against us, and we begin to select from those pieces and we begin to attach narratives to them. And you give example after example of this in in your book, Assigned Superstitions and God's Plan. Can we make any kind of general claims about how human beings go about the process of meaning making from different periods of history?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I try to point out is that we make meaning based on the categories and circumstances that are available to us. So in the Greco-Roman world, they were trying to read auspices. They they wanted to find out what were the signs from slaughtered chickens and what did their livers look like? And then that would give us a chance for the future and whether we could go to battle and attempt to win or not. With the Greeks, of course, with the Delphic oracle, they would want to consult the priestess and see what she would say. And oftentimes, the result of that oracle was a little ambiguous. (laughs) And so they say, if you go into war, a great army will be defeated. And the general says, all right, I'm going to war. And of course, it's his army that's defeated. They say, well, the oracle was actually correct. The great army was defeated. So each of us approaches this in the categories and thoughts and culture that we find ourselves in. But today, as you said, movies can be some of our scriptures. You know, they they inform the way that we see and view the world. In antiquity, especially for the time of Jesus, Paul, the apostles, the Old Testament was the scriptures. And that's the way they interpreted the world and made sense of what was going on and how God was active or not in certain events. And so I think it's important for us just to be aware that the culture we find ourselves in, the categories, the philosophical systems that surround us, that's the way we typically are going to make meaning of the world.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today, we're welcoming back to the show Dr. Brian Shmisek. He's an award-winning author, and he has had a distinguished career in Catholic higher education, He's been provost and dean at faculties at St. Mary's University in Minnesota. He was also dean at Loyola University Chicago and the University of Dallas. He currently serves as provost at University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, Illinois. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan, The Human Quest for Meaning. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and discussions, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're delighted to welcome back to the show Dr. Brian Schmiesek. He's an award-winning author who has had a distinguished career in Catholic higher education. He's been provost and dean at faculty's such as St. Mary's University in Minnesota. He was also dean at Loyola University Chicago and the University of Dallas. He's currently serving as provost at the University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, Illinois. Longtime listeners will remember that we had him on the show before to talk about his book dealing with uh, traveling in Rome from a biblical perspective. Today we're talking about his most recent book, Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan, The Human Quest for Meaning. So let's take up where we left off in the last segment, I really want to dig into this part of your title of your book, this notion of plans. And maybe let's start with God's plan, because I think that is a phrase that is very familiar to a lot of our listeners. When we use a phrase like God's plan, what do people generally mean when they begin to talk like this?
1: Boy, that's a great question. And I'll tell you, I, I don't know exactly what everybody means by it, but I know that it's so popular. There's a whole cottage industry around God's plan. One of the things I bring up in the book is that there was a website about Christian dating and it was, you know, God's plan for your spouse can be found here. Wow. You know, what a great tagline. You know, I mean, of course, I'm going to go to that website if, if God's plan for my spouse is going to be right there. There's another you know, cottage industry of books of God's plan for your suffering, God's plan for your life, God's plan for your house, God's plan for your career. It's a great way to sell things, I think, and and maybe that's why it's part of the title of my book. But the idea that God has a plan just for you, I think that's become so pervasive in our American culture that's very individualistic. One of the things I point out in the book is that even in the New Testament, the term God's plan is really made popular by Luke. Luke is the one writing with the Greco Roman audience in mind for whom those terms make a lot of sense. But even in the Old Testament, there's not a lot about God's plan. And what there is, is primarily in Jeremiah and also in Isaiah about God speaking to the exiles who are in the Babylonian exile. And he says, I have a plan to bring you back. I have a plan for your prosperity. And of course, for us in the United States, that's often picked up by what we call the prosperity gospel preachers. And say, see, God has a plan to make you prosperous. And I said, well, is that what that means? I, I know it was addressed to a letter to the exiles in the book of Jeremiah. And, but those people were taken out of their homeland and they were suffering under a Babylonian captivity. And God's plan was to bring them back and make them prosperous. And of course, people today say, and that applies to you. You know, God has your plans in mind and he wants to make you prosperous. So getting back to your original question about what do people mean by God's plan? Boy, I don't know that it's such a rubber band concept. It can apply to almost uh, anything.
0: Well, what I like about that answer, and thank you for kind of going into detail there, is We can look back at other points in kind of Christian history. We could look, for example, at the Puritans, who were a strong strand of a kind of Calvinist theology, and we might say that they would describe God's plan not necessarily in positive terms. They might say, it's God's plan for most human beings that they will suffer and be damned. And that's just how God chose to love us, is that most of us will be damned and a small number will be elect. What, what I heard in your answer that if for now, if we look at the American context, we have really thrown away that kind of dark side of Puritanism. And when we're talking about God's plan in popular media, Oftentimes it's tied to, and you use this term, the prosperity gospel, and we may want to unpack that, but it really is tied to an idea that if you're suffering now, God will redeem it, and God will make your suffering whole and will give you bounty. And that tends to be the narrative that a lot of people, again, to use your analysis here— are making a lot of bank on. They're really making money by trying to sell people this idea that even if you're suffering now, your suffering has a meaning and it will be turned around to prosperity later. So let's dig into that. When you use this term, the prosperity gospel,
1: what are you meaning by that? Well, I think that's a pretty common term today. You know, it's by uh, a lot of preachers who will preach prosperity <laughs> that that God wants you to be wealthy, healthy, and whole. And if you're not, you know, that's his plan for you. And if you subscribe to the website or attend my church, you'll find out how God's plan can work for you to make you wealthy, healthy and whole. The challenge is that doesn't really conform to the scriptures. (laughs) The scriptures, especially the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, wrestles with the question of why do bad things happen to good people? You know, that's the whole story of Job. There are many stories like that in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And even Jesus himself is asked about those questions about the tower falling and killing a number of people. This happens in the gospel of Luke. And they say, well, whose who's sins? Why did that tower fall? Whose sin was it? Was it those people or their parents? And Jesus responds, no, it was nobody's sin. You know what I mean? You know, essentially, you know, towers fall and they can kill people. So again, it's not that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. So if you're prosperous, wealthy, that means you're a good person. If you're Poor and sick, it means you're a bad person. You know, that's not the Christian gospel. Unfortunately, to use your term, people are making bank by preaching prosperity and that God wants you to be wealthy, healthy, and whole.
0: Now, I, I really appreciate that answer. And I want to make sure that listeners are following along with us. So earlier in our conversation, we used this image of the river and being carried by the current of the river, and at times you grab a paddle and you start to change your course in the river. If I'm hearing correctly, your analysis of the the prosperity gospel basically says, if you just let the current take you, you will go to ruin, but God intends you to get a paddle and to paddle to safety, wealth, health, wholeness, and I'm going to sell you the paddle, Do I have that analysis correct, or would you say it in a different way?
1: It sounds pretty accurate,
0: yeah. (laughs) So that really is the conceit of your book, Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan. You're trying to look at this reflex that we have to create meaning, and you're looking at the ways in which certain people have tried to capitalize on that search for meaning. And my reading is you're trying to give the reader tools to be really critical about that so that they can create their own meaning. They're not tied up in this kind of economic dance where someone else is selling them a meaning.
1: That's close. And also, this happens in all kinds of circles where people will say, God has a plan for your life, and I'll tell you what that is. (laughs) And ultimately, who are any of us to know what God's plan is for someone else and their life? And I say in the book, that can be considered even a little theologically arrogant (laughs) to say that to someone else. When instead, I think each of us has human agency, and each of us, should discern uh, our future for ourselves. And uh, if we want to categorize it in terms of God's plan or some of the other categories I use there, everything happens for a reason, or this was meant to be. We have all kinds of categories to imagine those things. And sometimes it's easier, I think, to recognize our own agency in the situation and maybe not ascribe it to what God wants. Maybe. God is speaking to me, or maybe I'm just choosing it
0: because it's what I prefer. So I'm hearing a couple things in that answer, and I really appreciate your taking the time to unpack this. I'm hearing, first of all, that you are firmly planting your flag in the notion that each person, each reader of this book is going to have agency to help to create their own meaning and to, if you will, paddle their own boat, to kind of build from that meaning towards a plan that makes sense for their life that is in concert with what God may want for them or some higher power. I'm also hearing that there are those that want to come in and interrupt or short-circuit that process. They want to impose their story on that that very individual process of meaning-making, and you're trying to both empower readers to take command of their own destiny, their own meaning making. And you're trying to interrupt that reflex that wants to pass that responsibility off to somebody else, whether it be a guru or a shyster. Now, when I say it that way, does it sound right? Or would you say it in a different way? Right,
1: no, I, it's, I think that's accurate. Yeah. Whether it's a guru, a shyster, or even someone, you know, who's maybe has your best interests at heart, but doesn't know you that well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not
0: Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Brian Schmiesek. He's provost of the University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, Illinois, and today we're talking about his most recent book, Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan, The Human Quest for Meaning. So you used a phrase a moment ago that I want to circle back to. You used the phrase theological arrogance. I wonder if you would dig into that phrase and unpack it for me and my listeners. When you say that, I could imagine a couple of meanings to attach to that.
1: What do you mean by that phrase? Well, I would just say that, and I want to be careful how I say this, but anyone who's claiming to know God's will for another human being, I just I would invite that person to, to reconsider that, because I think that it's really important that we have some theological humility, but for me to tell you, David, God's plan for you is this, or God's plan about this radio show is that. Do I really know God's plan that well that I can tell you, you know, what it's going to be? And, uh, I think that can be bordering on theologically arrogant, and so I would just invite us to be a little more humble about knowing uh, God's plan for other people.
0: I think that that's very well said. I also note that you are a Roman Catholic, I'm a Roman Catholic, we're in a structure in our church where we do have authorities, whether they be priests or bishops, who, at least from one way of looking at it, their way of of being in the world is from one reading to tell others how God wants them to live their lives. And so when you look at, for example, hierarchical structures not just in the Catholic Church but in other religious Communities. How do you think about that with regard to this idea of meaning making and theological arrogance? What role do religious authorities play in these kinds of questions?
1: That's a great question, and I'm happy for the chance to clarify the thought a little bit. So, I think that in many ways we can say, with probably with uh, a solid understanding that God wants there to be justice, peace, you know, those kind of good qualities in the world. But in terms of when we get down to each individual person and say, does God want you to marry this person or that person? Does God want you to drive this car versus that car? Does God want you to live in this location or that location? There's where I think we can be approaching a little bit of a theological arrogance. Other than God wanting peace, justice, humanity to live in solidarity with one another, for the poor not to be ostracized or marginalized or taken advantage of, those are the broad principles that we find at the scriptures that I think are best preached. But when it gets down to this group of people over here, God's plan for them is to do X, Y, or Z. I think that's where we get into a little bit of pickle. So
0: what I'm hearing you saying is that there is a kind of gray area and there's an area where it is proper to listen to religious authorities. But also when we get below that gray area, it can be almost too fine grained, almost too detailed. So let me then ask you questions like if we're going to talk about a religious authority telling us where to spend our money or what candidate to vote for, is that above the gray line or is that below the gray line in terms of too much intrusion?
1: Yeah, yeah, I would say that's obviously too much intrusion, you know, or God wants this person to win the election and not that person to win the election. That, that gets a little too problematic, I would argue. Well,
0: and so when we make those kinds of distinctions, it seems like even though you are not explicitly talking about this throughout the book, that this really is an invitation for readers to examine their own consciences and to really think about the way in which God is interacting with them or some higher power is interacting with them or the way that they're arranging the world, they need to have a moral position and they need to think deeply about what that moral position asks of them for their present and future actions. Now, am I hearing that correctly or would you say that in a different way?
1: No, I think that's accurate. I would also pivot just a bit to say that in the book, I also engage a number of um, atheists, And I try to look at them from a positive point of view (laughs) and to say, as you noted, David, I'm Roman Catholic, you're Roman Catholic. But I think that, you know, we want to broaden. I certainly want to broaden the conversation so that I do look at atheists and what they have to say and uh, how they make meaning of the world. And I enter it through this discussion about what happens after we die, you know, the afterlife. And I remind the reader that throughout most of the Old Testament, there's really no concept of an afterlife. There's no hope of living forever well, over or eternal life the way we might think of it today in Christian terms. And so we can understand a lot of thinking around what is life like if we don't pose it in afterlife from reading the Old Testament scriptures, because they were perfectly content to lead their lives without hoping in an afterlife. And in in that respect, I think that's where we get some insight too from modern atheists. And the insight that I get from them and bring out in the book is that we can live a life of gratitude. We can be grateful for what we have today and not so focused on what life is going to be like in some eternal life or some afterlife. But what is the life that we want to live today? In the book of Sirach, it talks about enjoy life, (laughs) have a glass of wine, you know, and uh, be merry because this is the world that God has made for us. And I think that there's a lot of insight there. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is, even though, David, we've been talking about this from a faith point of view and God's plan, I think the book also engages those who would not think about God's plan and who would say, you know, I'm, I'm in the universe, but how do I make sense of this without resorting to a deity or a higher power, as you put it? This is such
0: a helpful reframing, and I just want to lift up to listeners what you just did. So we've been talking almost exclusively in religious terms and higher power terms. I really love that you have also brought in the insight from contemporary atheists, because we're talking not just about a way of being religiously towards the future, but also ethically towards the future of having a set of commitments that help us to orient and understand the here and now and make plans towards the future, that's not exclusively religious, but it is generally human. Am I hearing that move correctly?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. And of course, going back to the classical world, they might be thinking of the gods, but they weren't thinking about Jesus. Cicero certainly wasn't, and he wrote a whole book on divination because he also recognized that some people thought that they could discern signs in the world and know what was going to happen what the gods you know had in mind or what the universe had in order and ultimately cicero says no the gods do not know the future that's what cicero would say chance does exist in the world and cicero says and if chance exists then the gods can't know the future because it's chance
0: What strikes me throughout this book is that you're offering the reader a set of qualitative analytical tools. You're not saying that being oriented towards the future and making plans towards the future and trying to make meaning in the here and now is good or bad in itself. But if I'm understanding you correctly, there are certain ways that we can approach those processes that are more healthy and are more conducive to good relationships with ourselves and with others and there are approaches that are less healthy. When I frame it that way, does that feel right? Because we're talking about superstitions, and I would imagine qualitatively you would say a superstition is not as good as a careful analysis that, for example, like Viktor Frankl might offer us in terms of the meaning and what that should indicate for our future actions.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I do recognize that a number of people do live their lives by superstitions. And so I'm not trying to condemn that either. I mean, I bring up horoscopes. And I personally don't believe in horoscopes, but every newspaper seems to have a horoscope section and a lot of people read horoscopes, and I cite Pew research on how many people actually subscribe to and put their trust in horoscopes and okay, so i rec- I recognize that a lot of people do that, you know even though I don't, there are a multiplicity of ways you know that each of us as human beings try to discern and create meaning and figure out again what is this all for, what is this all for? me? Why am I here? And is there some larger plan that I'm supposed to fulfill? One of the stories I bring up is a young couple with a real estate purchase. They wanted to buy a house. And because they didn't get the first house they wanted, the real estate agent said, your house is still out there. This one wasn't meant to be. Oh, OK. Maybe that's just the real estate agent. Her words of comfort that she's learned, you know, to assuage people who don't get their homes. Is there another house out there that's meant to be? or was that house, would that have been better? I also talk about how we as human beings psychologically have this confirmation bias that we think that because something happened the way it did, that was better, that worked out for us. And then we can look backwards in our lives and see this thread that all these points connect together. And so looking back at our lives, we can say, oh, yes, this was meant to be. I wouldn't have met my spouse or I wouldn't have been living in this place if that other thing hadn't happened. So since it did happen, this was obviously meant to be the world works out for the best. And, you know, maybe not all the time it works out for the best, but that's the story we often tell ourselves because we need to live in an environment where we don't have that cognitive dissonance. We cannot be going back in our lives and rethinking and rehashing every single decision. We just can't do that. That, that would Cause depression, probably <laughs> just make us a little
0: mentally unwell. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Brian schmisek He's provost at the University of Saint Mary of the Lake in mundelein Illinois. And today we're talking about his most recent book, Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan: The Human Quest for Meaning. We'll be back in just a moment.
1: How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm?
0: I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and discussions, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be welcoming back to the show Dr. Brian Schmiesek. He's an award-winning author, and he's had a distinguished career in Catholic higher education. He's currently provost of the University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, Illinois. And today we're talking about his recent book, Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan, The Human Quest for Meaning. Well, as we've been talking about all of these different aspects of meaning-making and plan-making in the human condition, both from ancient history up to our contemporary times, one thing that I'm struck by again and again is that we're talking about the way that time works in human life. And the real place where that became crystalline for me was earlier in our conversation where you said you're really writing this book to your 20 year old self and I want to think about that for a moment because we're here in 2022 you're looking back imagining a self that existed in the past and I would think that self that existed in the past also was looking forward imagining a you in the future You've got no way to actually connect those two individuals, and yet they are related and connected. We're talking about an interesting dance of imagination here. So I guess my question is, what role does imagination play in meaning making and plan making for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it, I think it plays a great role deal for me. And I'm sure it plays a great deal in in the lives of others to imagine various futures and especially to look back in the past. One of the things that I I mentioned in the book is that, and, and it's kind of a joke among some of our, when our kids were young, they would say, just imagine if I had a different dad or a different mom, wouldn't my life be different? And I would say to the kids, actually, you wouldn't be here, you know, because the only way that you exist is because your mom and I came together. If there were a different dad, then you would not be here. And again, this is something that I bring out extensively in the book is that we are all a product of our DNA (laughs) And, uh, and it gets a little biological, but there's absolutely no way that I could have been born at a different time or to different parents or to a different location because I'm totally dependent on who my mom and dad were. And each of them, they're dependent on who their mom and dad. And all through history. And so the fact that each of us is even here is a miracle. It's a graced existence, if you want to use those terms. And so to me, that's one of the great things about even imagination, as you said, is is we can think back and run these thought experiments and say, if my mom and dad hadn't met, it's not that I would have had a different set of parents. I would not be here at all. You know, and they're going back to our earlier conversation about atheistic Insights is that's something that we can gain and then be grateful to say that we are, we have some gratitude for this life. It's completely unearned. And in that way, I think that folds back into a Christian theology of grace and the gratitude for what we have freely that's unearned.
0: What I love about what you just said is, as you state it that way, it begins to sound a lot like that mechanistic universe that we started out talking about from the 17th, 18th century, Sir Isaac Newton and the billiard balls. But what I love about your book, Science, Superstitions and God's Plan, is that you don't just leave it there in that kind of biological determinism, but you also interweave that with other stories. For example, a young child named Paul, who's born in 1941, and his parents move from New Jersey to New York City, and in the process, Paul Simon is in the neighborhood with Arthur Garfunkel, and one of the greatest songwriting duos in the world is born from that close association, but you point out that never would have happened if the parents hadn't made the choice to make that move. So there's
1: determinism, but there's also choice and will in this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Free will and human agency plays a tremendous role in our lives. And so we can look back and say, oh, Simon and Garfunkel, that was meant to be. But then if we go back to the nineteen forties and say, did they really need to move to that neighborhood? The Simon parents. And they didn't. You know, they they had free will choice and they chose to move there. And then Paul Simon met Art Garfunkel in grade school. And you know, that's how it came together. Uh, as in the book, I also talk about almost the chance. With John Lennon and his parents having a fight over who he would go with, whether he would go with his mom or his dad, because his dad, when he ran into John when John was just a young boy about five years old, he wanted to take John Lennon to uh, New Zealand, Australia, you know, with him. And what would that have done? To uh, you know, there wouldn't have been the Beatles, right? There wouldn't have been any of the music that we enjoy from from the Beatles. And that was something that we just never would have known. What I'm what I'm getting from this is thinking about
0: the concept of time, as we're thinking about the way in which we imagine ourselves in the past, we imagine ourselves forward in the future. When we think about these things that are absolutely out of our control, who our parents were, those kinds of things, and the things that are in our control, the choices that we make that lead to eventual outcomes that are good or ill, One of the things that really strikes me about the entire process that you're doing in your book, Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan, is that, and this is going to be my word, not yours, but this feels to me like it's therapeutic, like it's designed to allow readers to look at the sweep of their lives and to accept that certain things were out of their control, certain things were in their control, and that in every circumstance, perhaps they made the best choices that they could at that time. When I say it to you that way, does that feel right or does that feel weird? Would you say it in a different way?
1: No, maybe. I mean, the, the thing that, you know, one what, what of the sparks behind this book initially was teaching graduate students in theology ministry courses who would talk about maybe an unforeseen tragedy. I don't want to get too dark, but let's say something, something bad happens. Someone loses a child due to a terrible accident. Or again, like maybe a child is hit by a drunk driver and is killed. Was that part of God's plan? You know, and I would argue no, you know, that, that was not part of God's plan, but too often I've heard those kinds of platitudes repeated. And I would try to gently offer other explanations, but oftentimes, and again, I'm not trying to take away anyone's meaning, but the way that they construct meaning in their lives, but oftentimes it can be just an easy default to say, well, that was God's plan or God needed another angel in heaven. And then as a theologian, I would think, really god doesn't really need you know that to happen and so that that was one of the initial sparks behind the book does everything happen according to a plan is it god's plan and then again maybe as you said looking back at my own life seeing what i thought was god's plan or what i thought i needed to do or had to do wondered what was supposed to happen i think a lot of us you know interpret events that we have in our lives through various lenses and that's what this book is meant to address especially in times of tragedy, that's when we reach out maybe most desperately for meaning. One of the quotes I have in the book is, there are no atheists in foxholes. And we've heard that before. When people are in those desperate times and war and tragedy and people getting killed, we can very easily say, this is God. God wanted that to happen or God needed that to happen or this person wasn't meant here because God had another plan for them. But I think it's this book invites us to think about those questions a little differently.
0: This is really powerful, and I appreciate you kind of digging into the therapeutic aspect of this, but there was something in what you just said that I want to linger on for a moment because we're not just talking about individuals making meaning for themselves, but you're also involved in the training of religious leaders and in their theological development. What I'm hearing you saying is there's a danger if they walk away from their training and their formation thinking that they have command over other people's meaning, and if they are the ones who should be in a position to say, when they see tragedy, to re-narrate that and say, you know, this is all part of God's plan. Did I hear that correctly, or would you say
1: it in a different way? No, exactly. And I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the perhaps being more humble theologically. You know, rather than being theologically arrogant and trying to tell people or create a narrative for them about how God is acting. And I think it's better for each of us, you know, if we could figure that out on our own, you know, using some of the tools that that we have at our disposal. If you're just wow. joining
0: us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Brian Schmisek. He's provost at University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, Illinois. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan, The Human Quest for Meaning. So as we move towards the end of our conversation, I want to start to ask you about the concept of surprise and what role surprise plays in meaning making. If I'm understanding your way of thinking about this, is one of the goals that we are trying to move towards as we get to healthier and healthier meaning making, is one of the goals to better lock down our future and make our plans more accurate and predictive, or is the goal to make ourselves more flexible and open to being surprised by the events that come?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting way of putting it. I would say that if anything, the goal is to recognize our own agency. (laughs) Again, just to go back to that term, maybe to be open and flexible, as you described. And so not thinking that there is a firm, fixed plan that I am to follow, but instead my agency has a lot to do with it. One of the parables I like to use is the one where Jesus talks about three people each given different sums of money and what did they do with it. The first two invested it, made more, and then the third one buried it in the ground. And to me, that's a fascinating parable because it's not as though in the parable, the person who gives them the money isn't saying, here's how I want you to invest in, just giving them the money. <laughs> and it's up to the individual to decide what to do with what they've been given. And to me, that's a great metaphor for this book. You know, it's a parable for what I hope people get from this book is that we've been given something and it's up to us to create something out of it. And it's not as though the master of the parable is saying, here's how I want you to use the money, but instead it's up to us to figure out how we're gonna use the money. And the person who's punished in the parable is the one who just buried the money and didn't use it for anything. So I think it's not as though God is saying that we have to invest it this way or that way. It's just that we need to invest it. (laughs) we, We need to use the gifts that we've been given.
0: This is really helpful to me. So when I hear you saying that, You're reading that story of the three who are given the money and two invested and one chooses not to invest it. If I'm hearing you correctly, that's a story about agency. And the reason why the third one was not as praised as the first two is because that third one abdicated their agency, refused to do anything and just let the flow of time take them rather than making a stand in one direction or another. Does that sound right or would you say it in a different way?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. In that third person, you know, what, what happened was their money get given to the first two because the first two were going to do something with the third one, you know, who wanted to just save it and buried in the ground ended up with nothing. Well, and this reminds
0: me as well of that story from Moses, where he says to the Israelites that he's leading, I put before you two choices, death and life, and I urge you to choose life. And this really brings us back to what I think is the moral persuasion of your book, "Sign Superstitions and God's Plan. You're not saying to the reader, if I'm reading you correctly, that every choice is equally valid. You do have a stake in certain types of choices and certain ways of owning our agency. If I'm reading you correctly, you would say certain ways of being active in meaning making are better than others. Does that feel right to you or would you shy away from that?
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, I guess I would say the we talked earlier about the horoscopes and I I disclose in the book and, you know, say here that I don't find that particularly meaningful, but I know a lot of people do. And so I don't I'm not trying to condemn anyone for reading a horoscope because if they find that meaningful, okay. But I also think that there are other perhaps better ways that I've found and I explore a whole host of ways of making meaning in the book. And again, through ancient history, through biblical history, and even through our modern times. And I would hope that the reader is able to discern what's going to make best sense for him or her to make meaning in his or her own life.
0: This is really helpful. So that clarification is really useful. You're not advocating for a certain approach. You're not advocating for a certain meaning. You're not advocating for a certain sense of God's plan. But rather, this book functions more as an invitation for people to take a close look at how they are arranging the building blocks of their universe and asking them to ask themselves, is this working for you? Is this healthy for you? Does that
1: feel like a good description? Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, some of the examples I give don't have clear answers. And I'll give you one example. You know, when Benedict XVI retired, that night, lightning hit St. Peter's. It hit the dome, and there's a photo of it. What does that mean? I mean just, there's no real answer, right? It's all up to us to figure out. Does that mean God was angry that Pope Benedict had resigned? It, uh, another lightning story i like to share is when, uh, when John Lennon, to bring it back to him, when he said in the summer of 1966 that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. In Longview, Texas, they organized a beetle burning where they were going to Burned all the Beatles records and they encouraged all the teenagers to come together and have this nighttime bonfire where they would have a confrontation of all those Beatles paraphernalia. And that night, lightning hit the radio station that was organizing the Beatles burning and knocked them off the air and knocked the station manager unconscious. What does that mean? Does that mean that God liked the Beatles? So we are the ones left to discern meaning given what happens in our daily lives. And of course, there are lightning strikes all through history and people make meaning out of that. And uh, that's just one little example of those natural wonders. Even Cicero talked about what lightning strikes might mean. But ultimately, it's up to us to figure that out or, or to say it doesn't mean anything. You know, it's just a random event.
0: And your call to each individual reader is this is a process that you need to be doing for yourself. And we should be very eager to engage in that process. But we should be wary when, for example, a religious leader looks at a hurricane hitting New Orleans and saying it's just because there was so much sin there. So when we get to a higher level, we should be cautious about meaning making. But for an individual, the meaning making is very important. Am I understanding that distinction correctly?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I'm glad you brought up the hurricane example. It just seems every example of a national tragedy, if someone is out there to say that it happened because of sin in the world or that, that this city or that city had too much sinning going on and God hit it with a hurricane or an earthquake or something like that, that happens quite often as well. And again, it's up to us as human beings to say, is that really what happened? Is that the way God works? Uh, or is there something else going on here? tectonics or a big (laughs) pressure system over the Gulf of Mexico or something else.
0: Well, Dr. Brian Schmiesek, I have to say, I am really grateful that you took the time to write this book, Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan. And what I want to make sure that listeners understand is that even though we've been talking in religious terms, this is a capacious book. It looks at all manner of human experience, not simply Christian experience. It invites atheists and those from other traditions into the conversation with very generous examples and very open questions. It really is trying to engage in some of the most central aspects of the human question, what does it mean to be and what does it mean to be with one another in a world where we're only partially in control? I'm so grateful you took the time to write this book. I'm also especially grateful you took the time to unpack it today with me and my listeners. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, David. I've enjoyed our
0: time together and appreciate your thoughtful questions and reactions. We've been speaking today with Dr. Brian Schmisek. He's an award-winning author. He has had a distinguished career in Catholic higher education. He's served as provost and dean of faculties at St. Mary's University in Minnesota. He was also dean at Loyola University, Chicago, and the University of Dallas. Currently, he's serving as provost at University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, Illinois. We've had him on the show before to talk about his work. Today, he's been talking to us about his most recent book, Signs, Superstitions, and God's Plan, The Human Quest for Meaning.